Right, please remain standing and turn with me to Isaiah 53. Our Old Testament reading for today will be just verses 1 through 6. And we'll go back to Hebrews 2 and pick up where we left off last Sunday. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Would you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 2. We will read verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting... That he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation For the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. You may be seated. I once knew a pastor who, well, he, he really didn't like the song Away in a Manger. 
He didn't like it because of the second verse in particular. Second verse of Way in a Manger says, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And he was, uh, he just didn't think that was very plausible. He was convinced that if Jesus as a newborn was sleeping in the manger and a cow was mooing loud enough to wake him up, well, you just think about the babies that you know. Would they cry? Well, maybe it depends. Babies are different. I can't insist that the Lord Jesus would have cried if a cow had woken him up. But what we don't want to do, here's the point. What we don't want to do is to start thinking, well, Jesus couldn't have cried. He was Jesus after all. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't the manger scene have this sort of warm glow of this sublime like floating transcendence about it? Jesus was not allowed to cry. Jesus was crying like a normal baby. Well, we would have a hard time imagining that if, and here's the point, if our understanding of the birth of Jesus comes from tradition and pop culture and those sort of um, imaginary additions to the Christmas story and distortions of it sometimes. But if our understanding of the birth of Jesus comes from the Bible, then we'll certainly have no problem at all with the idea of Jesus crying as an infant. In fact, we will expect that he did probably a lot. In the first uh, few centuries of Christianity, the church had to confront and correct quite a number of, of bad ideas about what we call the incarnation, the relationship between Jesus being God, and Jesus being man. One of those bad ideas was called uh, docetism, which taught that Jesus only seemed to be a man. Uh, He was God, uh, but he sort of appeared in human form, they said. And so they would famously, if if you ask the question, if Jesus walked on the beach, would he have left footprints? And they would say, well, no, he wouldn't leave footprints because his human, quote-unquote, body was just an illusion of a body. And they couldn't tolerate the idea that God, who is a pure spirit, would actually, actually unite himself with a true, full human nature. With, among other things, all the solid fleshiness of a body. They couldn't get their minds around that. Again, because they were being informed more by their culture, the Greek philosophy of their day, than by Scripture. You see, Scripture teaches us the true, full, full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. teaches us that God the Son took to himself willingly and fully an entire human nature, body and soul, permanently, never to rid himself of it ever again for the everlasting future, so that he bears it still today. Or as our passage today puts it, he had to be made like us, in every respect, if he was actually going to save us. To save human beings, Jesus had to become a true human being. And that is the great mystery of the Incarnation. 
My point here is not to make you feel guilty for singing away in the manger. There are a lot of fine things about that song. But it is to help you think critically about what do I mean when I sing it? And what assumptions am I making about Christ? And what does Scripture say about the kind of Savior He really was, the kind of baby He really was in the manger? So let's look at this second half of Hebrews 2 in three parts this morning. First, a suffering Savior, verse 10. Second, a close kinship, verses 11 to 16. And third, a whole humanity, verses 17 to 18. So first, a suffering Savior. Last time we saw in verse 9 that Jesus, who created the angels, who is far superior to the angels, as chapter 1 says, was made for a little while lower than the angels. So by becoming man, Jesus humbled himself. He set aside the outward honor and glory of heaven so that he could live and die in humility for sinners. Verse 10 carries that thought a step further when it says, For it was fitting, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God, who created everything, had this plan for bringing us to glory. That was God's goal. That was God's settled intention to bring his chosen people all the way to glory. And so what was his strategy going to be? What was his plan? How was he going to take these sinful, weak people like us and get us all the way to this glory that we didn't deserve? Well, here's how he was going to do it. He was going to send someone ahead of us to forge the way. The idea here has been compared to to Daniel Boone exploring the Cumberland Gap and pioneering a new pathway through the mountains that other settlers would be able to follow because he went first. And by that, I do not mean that we are saved by following Jesus' example. What I do mean is that we are saved because Jesus has first done something for us without which we could not have been saved. That word founder, it's a very interesting Greek word, also translated as pioneer in the NIV. In the old King James, it's the captain of their salvation. It has this idea of this leadership and this foundational work that Jesus is doing uh, in the incarnation and in his work of redemption throughout his life and death. So in order to bring us to glory, in order to forge that path, to become the founder of that salvation, Hebrews is saying that Jesus himself had to travel the path of suffering that leads to glory. It was only because Jesus has traveled that path of suffering that leads to glory that we are able to, that God is able to bring us to glory. You might wonder what it means when it says God had to make the founder of our salvation perfect. That confuses a lot of people because wasn't Jesus already perfect? And if by perfect you mean sinless, holy, without flaws, well, yes, in that sense, Jesus was perfect from his conception and his birth on. Um, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit so that, Gabriel said, so that the child born to Mary would be called holy, the Son of God. Um, But you remember that Luke also says later about Jesus' childhood that 
Jesus grew. He really grew in wisdom and in stature. That's height, getting taller, kids. Jesus had to get taller, just like you do. And in favor with God and men. Jesus went through a real human childhood, all the way through, from infancy to adulthood. He really and truly grew up. And he, and he had to learn things. He had a human mind that had to develop and learn things over time. He had to mature through his experiences. And, and all along the way, what makes him different from us is he did all that without any sin. And so in that sense, he was far and away different. It was far and away different from the way any of us go through childhood. All, all of us meet those challenges of childhood with a, a built-in selfishness a built-in instinct to rebel against authority, as we were talking about earlier. Um, Jesus had none of that. But he did face those struggles. He, he did face the, the pinch of life. And this is really important. He knew what it was like to be sinned against. To be sinned against by his parents. To be sinned against by his siblings. By other people in his community. So yeah, he never sinned, but he sure did live among sinners. And like for all of us in our childhoods, that means growing up with suffering, means growing up with hurt feelings in the deepest sense of that. So when we use the word perfect today, we often mean flawless. But there's an older meaning of the word that's more like complete or finished. Understand the difference there? Jesus was always flawless, of course, but it took his entire earthly life for his human nature to become perfect in that sense, for all of those experiences he had to go through to be finished. After all, that's what he said on the cross, isn't it? He said, it is finished. And his work at that moment was complete. It was perfect. It was finished. How? Through his suffering. Through his suffering. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our Redeemer, Shepherd, friend. This is a true humanity, a true human development from infancy all the way to manhood, Always without sin, but not without pain, not without suffering, not without sharing to the fullest that bitter taste of the curse. It was with him every moment of his life. So the little Lord Jesus, I'm inclined to think with my pastor friend that much crying he made, which is how my pastor friend would sing it to himself anytime that song was sung. You know, it was, it was actually Satan who offered Jesus a path to glory, a path to the finish line without suffering, without crying. It was God the Father who made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. The next section, it's a little bit difficult, actually. Um, 
since I'm not doing a, a whole exposition of Hebrews, I don't want to get too bogged down here in the details of these Old Testament quotations. Um, I should touch on some of the challenges here. We're coming to the second point, a close kinship. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I was helped here by F.F. Bruce, who comments, hopefully, that basically Jesus shares with us a couple of things. He shares with us not only a common humanity, um, we've already talked about, but also he says Jesus is the, the Son of God, with a capital S, and we, in union with Christ, are sons of God, too. We'll talk about that a lot more tonight. Not in exactly the same sense, but there is this close kinship between us and Jesus, both in terms of human nature, that's who we are, and also in terms of our relationship to God the Father, who we are in covenant with God. And that is why, verse 11 goes on, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Now, here he quotes, then, from two Old Testament passages, once from Psalm 22, uh, then twice from Isaiah 8. Uh, Psalm 22 famously starts by describing the sufferings of King David in a, in a manner that previews uh, very clearly the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The, the parallels are very striking between Psalm 22 and, and what the crucifixion was like for Jesus. But Psalm 22 ends with an expectation of God's deliverance. God is going to rescue David, and when God does that, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so um, what it's saying here, when 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 he speaks of his brothers, it's showing us that David is not just going through this experience of suffering and deliverance as an individual, right? He is going through it as the covenant head of a whole community of people, the people of God as a whole. He is their representative. And so David's deliverance is going to mean deliverance for all of Israel. It's going to mean deliverance for these people he calls his brothers. And then in Isaiah 8, the author of Hebrews here is making a a similar point. In Isaiah 8, uh, Isaiah is living through some very dark times in Israel. But he is going to continue trusting God, not only as an individual, not only as an individual, right in the, the, before the verse that's quoted here, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah the prophet, too, is part of a community. He is leading both his own biological family and this larger spiritual family of disciples in trusting and serving God when much of the nation of Israel is not. And so for both David and Isaiah, for both king and prophet, there is this close kinship between the leader and those that they are leading. And Hebrews is bringing out here that that prefigures the relationship between Christ and us, between Christ, our king and prophet, and his brothers. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of the same things, flesh and blood. So would Jesus have left footprints when he walked on the beach? You betcha he would have. Because he had not just the appearance of a body. It was not an illusion. He actually shared, partook. In fact, he shares even now, even today on the throne of heaven, in our flesh and blood. He did not give it up when he ascended back into heaven. 
he himself likewise partook and partakes of the same things. And you remember from last time, why was it so important for Jesus to have that real human nature? And again, there are a few aspects to the answer, but the simplest one, the most basic one, is that he needed to be able to die. He needed to be able to die for us. He partook of our flesh and blood so that, verse 14, so that through death, through death, he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In our house, we love the book Going on a Bear Hunt, uh, where every time the family comes up against another obstacle, they look at it and they say, well, we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We've got to go through it. And if Jesus was going to save us, there was no way around death. There was no way over it. There was no way under it. He had to go through it if he was going to emerge victorious on the other side of it in the resurrection. It was only through death that Jesus could defeat death and deliver those who were enslaved to the fear of death. It was only by going through death that Jesus could rise from the dead and break its shackles, not just for himself, but for all of his people too, all of his brothers, all of his disciples. It was only, so we think about Genesis 3, it was only by having his heel crushed by the serpent that he was going to be able, in that same one fluid motion, to crush the serpent's head. And that, that is why, God became man. That is why Jesus was born and why they laid him in a manger. So that, through death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death and deliver us from our slavery to the fear of death. To save flesh and blood people, he had to take on that flesh and blood. And that flesh had to be torn and that blood had to be poured out. I like the way verse 16 says, basically, listen, guys, it wasn't angels that he was trying to save here. If he had been trying to save angels, well, that would have been a lot different. Then he wouldn't have needed the body and soul of a man to do that. But it wasn't angels that he was saving. It was flesh and blood, men and women and boys and girls like us. And, you know, Jesus very well could have looked at us and said, well, that's pretty terrible fix they've got themselves into. Oh, well. And just left us to the natural course of things. He didn't have to become man. He didn't have to take on our nature. There was nothing in the Son of God that necessitated him taking on a human nature. He didn't have to suffer and die for us. He chose to do those things. Out of unfathomable, compassion and love he chose to. And that's what brings us at last to number three, a whole humanity. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is what we've been talking about. Every respect, not a partial humanity, not some sublime, transcendent, rarefied humanity where Jesus was hovering with his feet three inches off the ground all the time. 
He was not an infant who never cried. He was made like his brothers in every respect, leaving nothing out. Obviously without sin. But remember, sin is not essential to what it means to be human. Adam was created without sin. Sin came in after creation. And so for Jesus to be sinless didn't make him any less human. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. See, one of the things that Jesus' true humanity means for you is that Jesus has a compassion, that is to say, a fellow feeling with you that he could only have because he became truly man. We could say that Jesus, Jesus gets it. He really understands. Have you ever had somebody say to you, oh, I know how you feel, and it just fell flat because you were thinking, no, you don't. You don't know how I feel. Stop saying that. And it was almost offensive to you because that effort at comfort did not hit the mark. It made matters worse. It made you feel less cared for. Be careful about saying that to others, by the way. You might not know how someone else feels. Be careful of claiming that you do. But Hebrews here is telling us that Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus has entered into our world of suffering, flesh, and blood, specifically so that he could have compassion, mercy, so that he could be perfectly equipped to bring us poor, weak sinners into the presence of God. There where it says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'll just touch on that. Propitiation is one of these notoriously big words. Uh, it's very important in the Bible, though. And I've defined it before. I'm going to do it again. What it, it mean, what it means is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And so turns that wrath away from us. So the wrath that we deserved, Jesus took in our place. And in that way, Jesus is very much unlike the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests brought this animal, and they placed it on the altar. said, there, that's going to be the sacrifice for me and for the rest of the people. But what Jesus did is he came and he placed himself on the altar. The priest and the sacrifice. He placed himself on the altar so that our lives could be spared. That's propitiation. And then finally, we come to verse 18. This is a very practical payoff of all of this for the Christian life. So don't miss this. I love the way this chapter concludes. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Some people are offended by the idea of Jesus being truly tempted. How could somebody perfectly holy and sinless actually experience temptation? Well, just think about this. If you think about the temptations of Jesus that the Bible actually describes, think about how they involve the devil trying to convince Jesus to choose to stop suffering and to get for himself relief and glory now by selfish means. 
by taking matters into his own hands, offering Jesus these shortcuts to abuse his power as the Son of God. So, for example, you're fasting, Jesus. You've been fasting a long time. You're really hungry. Why don't you just use your powers? Get yourself something to eat. Some fast food. With the power of the Son of God. Jesus was really hungry. Because he had a real human stomach and tongue. And nose and that idea of bread would have been so attractive. Because he had a real human imagination, he can imagine the smell of it and the taste of it, made all the more vivid because of those 40 days of deprivation. And to turn that down and to say, no, I'm not going to use the Holy Spirit's power for that selfish purpose just to satisfy my hunger for a moment. Making that choice to resist the devil's temptation. That meant for Jesus continued suffering. And the suffering was going to go on. That's just an example that's particularly vivid, but the fact is that temptation always, to some degree, involves suffering. Temptation makes us uncomfortable, and saying no to it is painful. Okay? Because it's relentless. It doesn't give up. It keeps tugging at us. And at some point, we can start to feel it'll be such a relief just to give in and not to struggle against this anymore because that struggle against sin hurts. It is hard. And Hebrews is telling us here that Jesus knows what that feels like. I once heard someone talking about this saying, you know, if if temptation involves suffering, and then the more you resist, the greater the suffering. If you think about it, Jesus, if he never gave in to that, that means that Jesus experienced that suffering of resisting temptation to the ultimate possible extent, to the fullest possible degree. You, on the other hand, Hebrews will later say, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But Jesus did. Jesus, who could have abandoned his mission and avoided the cross, but instead he stayed there and he bled and he died for you until it was finished. That is a Jesus who understands not just your suffering, he understands your temptations. And because he really understands, because he really gets it. That means that he can really help you. And, and it means that in the moment of temptation, you can think, Man, Jesus has been here, and he has passed the test. He has endured the suffering. And he has said no to the tempter. At great cost to himself. And he is here with me, and he sees... And he knows, and he can help me. Brothers and sisters, all of that is possible. Because Jesus made this great choice in the first place. Because he was not ashamed to call us his brothers. Because he willingly partook of our flesh and blood. Because he was made for a little while lower than the angels for us. Made like his brothers in Every respect. I hope you'll meditate on all that that every means and all the little details of your human nature. I hope we all remember this, not just this week, not just for a holiday, but always. 
that Jesus was a baby who really cried. Because if we miss that, we will really struggle to understand him becoming a man who really died. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we wonder, as we wander down here under the sky, that Jesus, our Savior, did come for to die for poor, ordinary people like us. He would come down here uh, lower than the angels and take on our flesh and blood so that he could suffer, so that he could not just suffer in sympathy with us, but so that he could suffer for us and bear the ultimate suffering that we deserved so that we could be spared. That wrath of God, have your wrath turned away, and also so that he could have compassion on us in our suffering that yet remains until he comes again and makes all things new. We pray that that day would come quickly, and then in the meantime, you would build our confidence and trust in this Christ who really knows, who really cried, who really died, and who now can really help us because of those things that he went through, both before us and for us. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen.